Behold, this child is set for the fall and for the resurrection of many in Israel and for a sign which shall be contradicted. Words taken from today's Holy Gospel in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. One of the things I cherish from the time I've spent in other countries is discovering when those cultures cling to good Catholic names for things. Such is the case on this day of the year in Germany, this day which we, of course, refer to as New Year's Eve, but which the Germans still call Silvester. This octave of Christmas, which we have been celebrating, which begins with Stephen, the first martyr, represents, in a way, the long age of persecution, as it concludes with the first pope who was not a martyr, St. Sylvester, who presided over the church's emergence from the catacombs. The peace was not an easy one. We can well imagine the thoughts of that successor of Peter, who had seen his most recent predecessors go to torture and death for the name of Christ. Could the Roman Empire really be trusted? Could the Church ever truly be at peace with this dark world? In the century that followed, the Christian people held strong to the faith of the martyrs. But a large portion of the hierarchy succumbed to the lure of a compromised creed, which would please the world and keep God at a distance. As we pray before the crib and contemplate our God here among us in the flesh, wrapped in silent joy before the Holy Family, we must all implore the grace of humility that we may never lose our sense of littleness in the great spiritual combat that engulfs us. Without Christ and his grace, we can do nothing. None of us knows how we would withstand the awful temptations that beset men in the highest positions of church authority. We must never cease to love the church and pray for her shepherds. Nevertheless, after the scandal we have had to endure in the sacred days leading up to Christmas, the last thing I would do is accuse any of you of being overly critical. The outrage is real, and your anger is just. The document that issued from the Vatican just before Christmas was made possible by the 60 years that preceded it. A mere blip of time in the Church's history, which has nevertheless witnessed the most rapid and widespread degradation of man in all recorded history, an unbridled celebration of unspeakable immorality and a near total rejection of the natural law, which now leads men to question whether human beings 
will even continue to exist as such. This complete moral collapse is not limited to our proud nation, though American culture, if we can even call it that, has driven the slide towards the abyss. Where has the Church stood in all of this? You know that this question is not a new one. In the face of such demoralizing confusion, some have gone further in asking, is the Church still here? Is it the same Church as always? Do we still have a true hierarchy over us? Your preacher does not hesitate to answer all those questions in the affirmative. We still have the Church founded by Jesus Christ. We still have a Pope, bishops, priests, and sacraments. Well, then why are we in this mess? Is the Church still teaching us? That question, my children, is not so easy to answer. To be sure, the, che- the teaching of the Church has not changed and never will change. The Church still teaches us through all that she has handed down to us over the past 2,000 years. When the Pope and the bishops in union with him transmit to us that unchanging truth, they are preserved from error. We must humbly listen and joyfully obey. But the Holy Ghost does not force the members of the hierarchy to teach us. And so we can ask, have those men entrusted with the divine teaching, mission, carried out their duty over these past 60 years? In many cases, we must answer no. From the tempestuous opening day of the Second Vatican Council to the recent ravings of the Synod and Synodality, A large portion of the Church hierarchy, including often the successor of St. Peter himself, has chosen to shirk the role of teacher. In an age when men's words can be transported across the globe in seconds, the men charged with handing down to an unbelieving world the words of eternal life have often made the conscious choice to set those words aside. They know that those words are in conflict with the teachings of this world. They are a sign of contradiction. We have condemned modern errors for over 200 years, they say. The time for anathemas has passed. The Church now prefers the language of mercy. Mercy on what? Mercy on repentant sinners? The Church has always taught that. And the Church has always taught that the truth must be proclaimed in charity, with all patience toward those sadly mired in the darkness of error. But how can the Church have mercy on wicked ideas? Some of these churchmen may have been well-intentioned. Maybe they sincerely thought that by calling a truce With modern liberal culture, they could be all things to all men and gain them for Christ. Others may have had 
less lofty motives, and beguiled by the errors of our time, became enemies of the cross of Christ. Whatever the case may be, the fathers of Vatican II, who ushered in this era, did something which had never been done at any of the preceding 20 ecumenical councils. They decided that no dogmas would be defined and no errors would be condemned. They established a pattern for how things would operate in the Church for the next 60 years. Traditional teaching would sometimes be repeated, and so there we would find the Church's ordinary magisterium at work. But very often, official documents would be prefaced with statements to the effect that the Church's teaching is not being reversed or called into question, but is just being set aside for the moment so that we can enter into dialogue with those who disagree with us. Consider the document issued two weeks ago. It certainly does present itself to us as magisterial, and it is prefaced with the disclaimer that it does, quote, not change in any way the Church's perennial teaching on marriage. It reminds us of the only possible definition of marriage, the exclusive, stable, and indissoluble union between a man and a woman naturally open to the generation of children, and insists the Church's doctrine on this point remains firm. It is hard to see how this preface can serve any other purpose than to let its authors off the hook for going on in the body of the text to advocate practices that fly in the face of that very same unchangeable teaching. It is the same method we have seen before. Flock of Christ, you have already been taught the truth. That's not our business today. We are just chatting with the world. When the Church's official teachers choose not to teach, they have no claim to divine guidance. What use have we of this religion of man? Christ alone has the words of eternal life. What good is a priest who lays aside the sacraments of Christ and sacred ceremonies of the Church to give spontaneous blessings and be a mere guidance counselor? What good is a bishop who lays aside the apostolic succession to be a mere functionary? What good is a pope who lays aside the keys to the kingdom of heaven and tells men that they should not feel judged for choosing the wide road that leadeth to destruction and the abominable sins of a city that met its end by fire and brimstone? O Simon Peter, truly the words of thy master are fulfilled. Truly Satan now desires to have us all that he might sift us as wheat. We pray for thee, Peter, that thy faith fail not. Convert and confirm thy brethren, for we want no king but Christ. We desire no way but the one he has shown us, the way of purity, of consecrated virginity, of holy and generous marriages of one man and one woman for life. 
O royal child Jesus, though princes of state and even of church reject thee, yet we do not. We will have none but thee to rule in our hearts, our homes, our nation. I tell you these things, my dear flock, not to confound you further, but so that you may not lose heart during this Christmas season. The Church will never cease to be the guardian of the truth. What we are witnessing in our world today and in the Church herself is the further unfolding of the mystery of iniquity. Sometimes members of the hierarchy have been a scandal to the faithful because of their personal moral corruption. Today, more than ever before, they are a cause for scandal and confusion because of their failure to teach the truth. All men, even churchmen, are capable of preferring the darkness to the light. The sweet siren of the world, the flesh and the devil, can be heard in their ear. Your commonwealth is far off in heaven, so what is the harm in making peace with the commonwealth of this world? Yes, our commonwealth is in heaven, but the crib and the cross are here on earth. We shall never set foot on the shores of our true native land unless we embrace that wood through which righteousness comes. The divine child born to us has always been a sign of contradiction, a stumbling block and foolishness to this world. This 60-year truce with liberalism has ushered in a violent post-Christian world. Already we find lonely but brave voices crying out in the wilderness. I firmly believe that the year to come will find many more. When the shepherds of the Church affirm once again the fullness of the faith with courage and zeal, terrible persecution is sure to follow. My dear children of light, continue to fight the good fight of faith. Hold to your stations on the front lines by simply growing where you are planted and being good at who you are. Strong, joyful, and holy families open to life and together for life. We love the Church and our unchangeable Catholic faith. The world will always hate us. We place all our hope in our lasting citizenship in that eternal commonwealth from whence we eagerly await a Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, to whom be our glory and honor forever. Amen.